God's order is very clear. Love him first. Love your neighbor next and love yourself last. We've reversed it. We love self first. We love God last. And in between, there's absolute havoc between us and our neighbor. And only the gospel can break through that kind of self-centeredness and turn a person inside right so that they will live for Christ. This is Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In the third chapter of 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul offers a list of characteristics that describes what the last days will be like. So far, Pastor Carl has examined part of the list, including how men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, and without self-control. As we pick up today, Pastor Carl continues looking at the next item in the list, that of being brutal. The model of our day is that if it feels good, do it. And so the use of alcohol and drugs and immorality is rampant. And this is the kind of behavior, Timothy, I want you to understand because it typifies the last days. And no, too, Timothy, it's going to go from bad to worse. In addition, he describes this lack of self-control as manifesting in other ways. Look at the next word, the word brutal. It's also translated fierce or in some of your translations, untamed. People who only are interested in their own purposes, they live like savage beasts. And so in the name of religion... There's a brutality, and we were reminded this week as we remembered those nearly 3,000 people who fell victim of brutality, of a fierceness in the name of religion. And they tell me there are 140 known terrorist groups in the world today, and as you know, their equipment is growing more and more sophisticated. But God foretold of a brutality that men would see as we moved in the last of the last days. And while I'm on the subject of fierceness and brutality, may I remind you that there have been millions slain in America. Not 3,000, but millions. 40 million in our country, 400 million worldwide. And I'm talking about the terror, the brutality that's performed on the unborn. And so there are even certain Baptists, certain Presbyterians, certain Lutherans, certain Episcopalians and Methodists who say that this is a God-given right for a woman to choose. Well, I want to tell you, if today is like a normal day in America, 4,500 little babies will be put to death. That's more than all the people who died on 9-11. And so we have a brutality in our day. And instead of honoring what is good, we honor what is evil. Paul next says, haters of good. Again, the Old English says, despisers of those that are good. And more and more in our society, standards of right and wrong are being twisted and compromised and destroyed. The hero today is not the man of God, not the minister, not the missionary, not the preacher, Not the godly father, not the woman who stays home to be the primary caregiver of her children. No, those are not the heroes of the youth culture. The heroes are women like Madonna and this other lady kissing passionately on public television. The heroes today are these drug 
uh, addicted, demon-possessed rock stars. The heroes today are the adulterous Hollywood actors. The heroes today are these sports gods and athletes that no matter how immorally they live, no matter how unfaithful they are to their marriage vows, we wave their flag because they're on our team. And we would do well to listen to the cry of Isaiah the prophet who said, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. In addition, he says, they are treacherous. You could translate it as in the King James, traitor. In fact, it's the same word used of the traitor Judas. It describes people who betray others, who cannot be trusted. Neither friendship nor partnership makes any difference to them. They break their promises, and so they get their own way. In addition, he describes such people as reckless. They're rash. They're, they're quick to make a decision without any careful thought. In addition, they're conceited. I like the Living Bible here. It says, puffed up with pride. And if a man is puffed up with pride, if he's swollen with conceit, he will never sacrifice himself for others. And so he will be a lover of self, a lover of money. What the next phrase says, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now understand, the Bible's not against pleasure. It's not against true pleasure. But you have to choose between God and pleasure. David said, Thou wilt make known to me the path of life, and thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy right hand there are pleasures forever. The problem comes is when you live in a society that loves pleasure more than it loves God. When you choose pleasure over God, and even some of God's people on this last late summer day, some of them are out on the river today. Some of them are catching their last day at the beach. Some are at the golf course. Some are still in the bed or in their kitchen reading the morning newspaper because they're sluggards and the Lord's day is not a, pleasure, a priority for them. They're a lover of pleasure in some respects. So we live in a day of pleasure explosion. I mean, the restaurants are full, the stadiums are full, the bar rooms are full, but the church house is empty. 260 Americans, only about 50 million of them will even be in church today. So Sunday has become anything but the Lord's Day. It's not really a day of worship. It's just part of the weekend. And yet God's order is very clear. Love Him first. Love your neighbor next and love yourself last. We've reversed it. We love self first. We love God last. And in between, there's absolute havoc between us and our neighbor. And only the gospel can break through that kind of self-centeredness and turn a person inside right so that they will live for Christ. Now, in addition to their moral conduct, I want you to see their religious observance. Look at verse 5 holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. Now, my friend, in one sense, though the church houses are not nearly as full as what they were 15 years ago, we still have rampant spirituality in this country. But understand that everything that is spiritual is not spiritually good. Paul tells us that in Ephesians 6. And what most Americans need today is not religion. In fact, they need to repent of their religion and turn to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. But Paul remembers, remember Paul here is describing people in verses 2 through 4 who deem themselves as religious. Now that may be a shock to some people. People who lack basic human courtesy, who defy the law of God, yet they call themselves religious. But history has shown 
that religion and morality are often divorced from one another when God marries them to each other. That's the theme of a lot of Old Testament prophets, the book of Amos. I mean, religious, religion was booming in Amos's day, but so was injustice. Isaiah the prophet dealt with the same problem in Judah. In the opening chapter of his book, God said, I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feast. They become a burden to me. I'm wary of them. So why do you spread out your hands in prayer? I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves, that is repent. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. And of course, our Lord dealt with the same problem in his day amongst the religious Pharisees. Seven times over, he said, woe to you. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. In this case, he says, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. Oh, they are careful. They were meticulous to be ceremonially pure, but even the vessels that they used were gained, Jesus said, by robbery and greed and deceit. Paul, 30 years later, describes that this will typify the last days. People whom he says have a form of godliness. They are outwardly religious, but they have no life, no power. No change on the inside. And remember, he's dealing with people who potentially were coming into the church, the confessing church, that Timothy was to avoid. They came into a worship service. They said amen to the prayers. They were here, uh, but they had, uh, though they had their offerings in the religious bag and everything else, they were people who had religion without reality, form without force. In James's words, they had faith, but without any works. Titus described these same people. They profess to know God, but by their deeds. They deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Listen, true religion brings together both form and force, form and power, religion with reality. It's not just outward, it's inward. And Paul warns Timothy Avoid such men as these. Now, he doesn't mean that Timothy should avoid all contact with unbelievers, for Jesus himself, we sang it this morning, is a friend of sinners and tax gatherers. Timothy was, to, was not to shun his association with such people. When Paul wrote the Corinthians, he said, if you were to do that, you couldn't live on planet Earth. You'd have to leave the world. No, he's dealing with people who say they are Christians, who join themselves to a church like this, but who live another lifestyle. Let me ask those who are watching by television or maybe listening by radio. If you are in a dead, cold, liberal church and you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, what does this verse of Scripture tell you to do? It says, avoid such men as these. Because God doesn't want you to have form without force. He doesn't want you to have religion without reality. And all across this country, we have some wonderful pastors who know the Word of God, who prepare the Word of God, who pour out their hearts Sunday after Sunday. And yet some of God's people are in dead liberal denominations and churches. And they tell me, well, you know, I stay in order to have an influence. Well, I'll have an influence, all right. 
Some man, some woman will say, oh, look at that person. They're a good man. They've got a good family. They go to that church. Maybe that's where we need to go to church. And by your influence, by your participation, you draw them into lifeless formalism under false teaching. Oh, they tell me, but I can't leave. My family has been here for five generations. Grandma is buried out back. Listen, if grandma could get up and leave, she would, but she can't. But you ought to. So why are you not supporting pastors that hold to God's truth? Third, I want you to notice in addition to their moral conduct and their religious observance, consider their proselytizing zeal. Let's continue in verse 6. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins led on by various impulses. Now Paul knows those who are deceived by the devil love company. Romans 1 catalogs a very similar group of people who are described in the same way as having a reprobate mind who Paul says they give hearty approval to those who practice such sins. See, misery loves company. And the sinner wants to be, in essence, an evangelist for the devil. I mean, you get a man who goes out and he gets drunk and he feels pretty bad. But because he's making a series of choices, now he doesn't want to sin alone. He wants to get some like-minded fellas to drink with him. You get a young man who loses his virginity. He feels pretty guilty. But now he wants to get other people to come into a sin with him. It's a proselytizing zeal. He uses actually a Greek term that was used in military operations. This verb here, captivate, was used of someone who would take a prisoner of war through deception. You might paraphrase it. They worm their way in. And so they were snakes. When the men were away, they targeted weak women and went into their homes to commit wicked sins. Let me summarize these weak women for you with three words. Gullible, guilty, and grasping. First, they're gullible. He calls them weak women. They're ready to believe just about anything because they're desperate for answers. They go to the supermarket. They read an article by Shirley MacLaine why they ought to embrace this New Age movement which of course is not new, it's the old devil's religion in Genesis chapter 3, but it sounds good to them and they bite it hook, line, and sinker. They're looking for answers, the cults show up at their door, and they believe and embrace their falsities to fill an emptiness in their lives. Second, not only are they gullible, they're guilty. He says here they are weighed down with sin. I mean, they're desperately looking for a way to get freedom from a guilty conscience. And third, they're grasping the phrase, led on by various impulses, refers to these unfulfilled desires, weak and weighed down with their sin. They're grasping for answers. They're led by their feelings rather than by the truth. They respond to their impulses instead of to the word of God. And by the way, the fact that Paul describes these people as weak women by no means understand, suggests that all women are this way, or for that matter, that men are not also vulnerable to these teachers or vulnerable to these sins. Understand there's a transition going on in the text, and we'll see it next week as we get into the second half of the chapter. He deals with this mass of humanity, these people who are alive in the last days, from kids who are disobedient to adults who may blaspheme, and he moves into the leadership within this realm, these false teachers. And so he's dealing with these preachers, so to speak, 
who lead the charge, who live immorally. And many a woman has fallen to their false doctrine where they have embraced their teaching without needing to abandon their sin. And there has been a large number of women victims from the tradition of Simon Magus all the way to the multiple wives of Brigham Young. Now, on top of that, there's a knowledge explosion. Notice verse 7, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. These are women who will listen to just about anybody, but they can't get their minds around the truth because they've never met the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And to illustrate how these false teachers capture their converts, Paul looks at two men, Janus and Jambres. You see them there in your text? Now, you will not find their names written anywhere else in the Bible. But either by oral tradition or by writings that were passed down, Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, puts a stamp of approval and says, yep, these are the names of the two magicians who opposed Moses. And he uses them as an illustration of how these people operate and what their outcome is. Verse 8, And just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind rejected as regards the faith. Now, if you're not familiar with the account, you might want to read Exodus chapter 7 through 9, where you have this record of Moses being opposed by these two magicians. And the devil, by his power, works through them. Aaron's rod turns into a snake. They throw down their rods, it turns into a snake. Moses turns the water into blood. They turn some water into blood. Moses calls up the frogs, they call up some frogs. But in every case, God's miracle is mightier than the devil's miracle. And ultimately, Moses calls up the miracle of lice and they cannot reproduce it. But what Paul is highlighting here is that the devil is an imitator. He is a counterfeit. I mean, do you think it is by accident that the fastest growing cult in the world today is called the Latter-day Saints of Jesus Christ? that they would attach the name Christian and Jesus Christ to their false demonic activity? That's why John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. The religious leaders of the last days will counterfeit God's work. Typically, they have a prophet or a prophetess or some unique spin on the Bible that no one else has seen in 2,000 years, or they may come out of liberal Protestantism where they say the Bible is either not true or reliable or, or, or fallible because it was written by men. And they always do something to replace God's word with human wisdom. And Paul's going to hit on this, and we'll see next time. He describes them as men of depraved minds. Their intellectual facilities have refused the light of the truth, and so they believe the lie. In the end, they are rejected. The technical Greek word is they were tested and found wanting, found counterfeit, used of metals. The King James says they were reprobate, disapproved. Janice and Jambres, finally exposed for who they were, came under the judgment of God along with all who followed them. Now ultimately, when our Lord comes back, he'll separate the weeds from the wheat and judgment will fall again. And that's Paul's point. Look at verse 9. But they will not make further progress for their folly will be obvious to all. 
as also that of those two came to be. Now let me leave you this morning with three important applications. Number one, I want to remind you from this text of Scripture that there is such a thing as biblical separation. Now we live in a day of ecumenicism where there are many movements in the church that are screaming for unity. And we ought to do everything in our power to be unified with other believers who are faithful and true to God's word. Jesus prayed for that in his high priestly prayer, that we would be one, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. But we must never forget that in the field of God, where he has sown wheat, the devil has also sown tares. And there are imitators both inside and outside of the church who are immoral in character and conduct and have nothing but external religion. Lovers of self, lovers of money, they have a form of religion but without any power. And Paul says, from such people, turn away. Jot down this verse, 2 Thessalonians 3.14. It speaks of our separation. And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man. Do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. Listen to this in Romans 16, 17. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eyes on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. 1 Corinthians 5, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, that is with the lost, or with the covetous, or swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with any so-called brother, if he should be an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. John the Apostle wrote in his second letter, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house, and do not give him a greeting. Now that may sound unloving, divisive, but I want to tell you it is biblical because it is the only way to keep God's church with a pure witness. So on the one hand, you have the Lord Jesus who ate with the tax gatherers. On the other hand, when it came to the professing church, Jesus said that there were certain kinds of people that are to be to you as a Gentile, as a tax gatherer. And so the Bible does not teach that we put our arms around everyone who names the name of Christ. That there is a place for separation when they depart from this litmus test that we call the Bible. Now listen, there needs to be a separation from, but may I remind you this morning, there needs to be a joining to, a coming in. God said, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking your assembling but encouraging one another in all the more as you see the day drawing near. You ought to do everything in your power to get with God's people in God's house in all the more as you see the day approaching. Secondly, in the end, I learned from this text that truth will be vindicated. Now, sometimes I get discouraged when I see these false teachers who in the name of Christianity present their false doctrines, but we need not fear we need not forget, ultimately, truth will be vindicated. Paul says here, their folly will be obvious to all. We know that from church history. The cults have come and gone. But in the very end, all men will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now, finally, let me say, not to respond to the truth is to open yourself to error. You may be here today thinking, I know I'm not saved. 
But I've got plenty of time to make a decision. The Bible says, boast not thyself of tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. I promise you, my friend, buddy, who gave me this Bible out of gratitude, signed it in the front, did not know that this would be his funeral day. And some of you don't know, we've already done almost a dozen funerals in this church this year, and the year's not out. Some people whom I thought we'd never bury, not this year. Tomorrow may never come for you, and the Spirit of God who is working on you today will not always strive with you. Jesus said a time can come when you've said no to God for so long, He will say no to you. And it's like the devil has given permission to take the seed from the heart that they may not believe and be saved. Today, the Bible says, is the day to be saved. Do not harden your heart. Let's stand together for prayer. Now, our Father, I pray today for someone who has form without force, who has religion without reality, who has faith without works. Someone who needs to be saved. They'd like to go to heaven. They think they might go, but they don't really know. Because they've never in faith come to Jesus Christ, to the one who can save them. You said it's not those that are well that need a physician, but them that are sick. You said, I came not to save the righteous, but sinners. Father, your word affirms that it is not until we see that we cannot save ourselves that we will look to Christ. Father, help some dear person today who's dead in their sins, but who wants forgiveness and new life. They may feel like the filthy Samaritan woman, having lived a life of immorality and adultery, but you said it is a trustworthy statement and it deserves our full acceptance that you came into the world to save sinners. And I thank you for that, Father. I thank you for the magnificent grace that you've shown me. You said whoever, that means anybody, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Would you today in faith call upon him? Now, God can promise you that because his son already in his own body took every blot, blemish, and filth, filthy thing you've done or might do, and in his own body he was punished for it there at Golgotha. And God raised him from the dead, showing the sufficiency of his death to pay for your sin. All that is left for you to do is to call upon his name. But you must call upon him in faith because the only thing between you and heaven is an act of faith. You must believe what God promised, that he cannot lie, that he will keep his word. Come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, Jesus said, and I will give you rest. Would you say today, Lord Jesus, save me. Now, Father, help your church to know the balance between embracing those that are a part of the bride of Christ who expound and believe this book is true and separating from those who have only a form of religion. Help us to be wise, not in our own eyes, but according to the dictates of this book. Help us to guard our own hearts in these days. Help us to protect the lives of our children and our grandchildren and to nurture them up on the things of Christ that they may not depart in the way that we've nurtured them. We need your grace, Father, to accomplish it. And we pray that we might accomplish it, that we would shine as bright lights in the midst of darkness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
for a copy of today's message, The Last Days, in its entirety, call us toll-free at 877-787-7478 and request program 2TM6. It's available on CD or DVD and can be downloaded from our website, searchthescriptures.org, or by using the Search the Scriptures app. Tomorrow we look at the fact that every word in the Bible is the Word of God, from Genesis to Revelation, as Dr. Berge presents a message entitled, Standing Firm in the Word. Join us then when we search the Scriptures.